This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. So Dave, I know you want to start off this conversation talking about the sort of a spiritual battle. So maybe let me open there and get some dialogue from you. Then we're going to dive into like the sort of a mindset of carrying a firearm in public. So let's let's hear some stuff about the, the spiritual battle. Well, you know, one thing to understand, I talk about it in my book, uh, you know, on spiritual combat. And in about a year, we'll have on spiritual warfare come up. Now, on spiritual combat is about being the soldier, bearing the full armor of God, receiving the, the mission and rolling forth. And so well, step back for a minute on the whole battle. You know, I, I'm here, and and what we tell people is, uh, it's actually is designed to weave in with on combat, and it actually parallels each other, because in spiritual battle, we know the evil uses human tools a lot of the time, and so we've got to be prepared on that that human side of the equation, and we'll talk about that auditory exclusion, slow motion, time, tunnel vision. We didn't know about those things. And, and uh, memory gaps and memory distortions, we have to know about those. We want to survive psychologically. We want to survive physically. We want to survive, you know, legally. And we'll talk about that. But first, we need to survive spiritually. So understand this, you know, I, I will fight and die for my nation. You recently come into our nation. God bless you. You know, made our nation a better and stronger place because Simon's in the team. But sooner or later, our nation will fall over my dead body, maybe a hundred years, maybe a thousand years. Like all nations, our nation will fall. Sooner or later, our son will die, but eternity continues. Have you wrapped your mind around that? It's so important. The way we think of things is, you know, we pray for a few extra years. We pray for, for better health. None of that means anything compared to bringing somebody to the knowledge of salvation and eternity in heaven. So we take that spiritual perspective. Don't I tell people, don't curse God because he doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should. Because in his big picture, bringing one people, one person the knowledge of salvation is more important than, than years of suffering. And, and don't pray for less violence. Don't pray for peace. Don't, oh, that's all good. Nothing wrong with that. Don't pray for posterity. And nothing wrong about that. Pray first and foremost that your loved ones will come to the knowledge of salvation and join you in eternity. Pray that your actions are such that that we'll do this. So never lose track. Your security team, your security team is a witness. It is first and foremost a ministry. There are people who will come to church, believers who will come to church, who wouldn't otherwise come, but they've got the mission. God has made them the sheepdog. You know, I, I talk about being God's faithful dog. I know when we get there in heaven, he'll embrace us as beloved children. But right now, it's you know all I can do to think about being God's dog. And I got a I got a couple of great dogs. I got an old gray muzzle lab. And if I let her off the leash, she'll wander in the neighbor's yard. She'll roll in something stinky, but I still love her. That God knows our nature, and He sees every bad thing we do, and He still loves us. 
But uh, my dog doesn't understand the vast majority of what I do. My dog has no idea what I'm doing right now. My speech is not there. Uh, and when I read, when I write, when I think, the vast majority of what I do, the dog can't even understand. And the same way with the gap between us and God. We will come to full understanding one day, but we can just understand enough about God as my dog does about me to understand. And Will Rogers, a smart, funny guy in the, in the middle of the, the 19th century, the 20th century, he, he had something really clever. He said, if you ever get to thinking you're a man of some importance, try telling another man's dog what to do. You ever done that? You tell somebody else's dog, and the dog looks at you, and the dog could talk. Here's what the dog would say. I don't know much. I'm just a dog. I know this. I'm not your dog. And when the evil one comes for you and your loved ones, you stand up and say, I'm not your dog. I belong to the master, to the great shepherd. I'm a sheepdog under the authority of the great shepherd. And I yearn for the day when I can rest at the feet of the great shepherd and hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So just be God's humble sheepdog. Uh, follow that path. And you will have people who will follow that path who don't truly know the Lord. And the most important thing you could do is bringing people on the team to an understanding of salvation, to understand uh, what it's all about. It's about saving souls. Now, God's command to us is, number one, love God and love people. Above all commandments is to love God with all your heart and to love people as yourself. But if you truly love people, and if you truly love God, we'll do what God tells us to. And we will bring people to the knowledge of salvation. And we do that by doing good deeds. And it's all, that's a path we outline in the book, Galatians 6, 9, grow, you're not weary of doing good. Let your life be a living, a living witness. I don't, don't try to preach the message, live the message. And living the message is far more powerful than preaching it. So as a member of your team, as a leader of your team, never lose track of the spiritual side of the equation. Never lose track of the fact that everybody on your team and their loved ones need first and foremost to know the Lord and their well-being. Now, when we expand out to that, that spiritual event, terrible things can happen, but God can use them for, to do good. Never lose track of that. And somebody on your team should have the job to immediately put their back to the wall and start praying. Somebody's a job it is, with their eyes open and their back to the wall, start praying. And we, we teach our teams to pray with your eyes open. You know, the old business, shut your eyes and bow your head. That's a, that's a 20th century thing. Uh, it kind of began with the Billy Graham uh, uh, revivals. You know, everybody here, close your eyes and bow your head in the privacy of the heart. Uh, and that's great. You know, but the idea God's up there is not down there. And, you know, when Gideon selected his 300 from the host of Israel, he selected the ones who kept their eyes on the horizon and brought the water up to the mouth. Their eyes are on the horizon. Their eyes are open. Uh, Jesus called through Lazarus. He looked up and said, Lazarus, come out. God's up there. He's not down there. And keep your eyes open and be that sheepdog. Be God's faithful sheepdog. But have somebody whose job it is to immediately, and rehearse it, rehearse everything you do, immediately with their back to the wall, with their eyes open, and start praying. And I love what you say there, Andy, because you know, one of the, and I'm really glad you started with the spiritual side, because one of the notes that I wrote down, if we talk about, you know, um, both people that me and you have both met and you more personally, Stephen Winifred and Jack Wilson, both of those had to engage as a civilian in a very combative way, but not everyone is trained to do it. I think one of the notes I wrote down going into this conversation was, Ordinary people doing extraordinary things where they're called by the Lord to step into a very confrontational situation. They're called to take another human life. And 
you know, with all your research and I've got all your books here, Dave, and read them. I've got notes away going through them as well. So now we'll talk about a bit about on killing on combat later, but what, what is that? You know, when I look at Facebook groups, uh, Dave, and I've got my own Facebook group, you know, church security management. And when I see people around safety teams, a lot of people focus on the gun aspect, and that is true. We need a way to defend ourselves when, when evil comes into our sanctuary. But I don't see too many people talking like you, talking about the, the mindset. What, what does it really take? You know, when we talked to Stephen Williford, you know, he was saying that people didn't look at him the same way afterwards. You know, Jack Wilson recounts his story, but he had to kill evil that day. I mean, um, no, I'd love to get some perspective from you. What should church security members be thinking about knowing that they're a permanent carry holder and they could be walking into one of these situations because it's just my belief, but it's not something which is already always spoken about. The, the training, the, the firearms, the, the gun handling, those are skills always talked about. Not very often do we talk about the mindset and the recovery. What, do you, what, what advice would you say to church safety teams, Dave? Well, first, lay that foundation of the Lord and hold it up in prayer. We have a supernatural resource to Him and never lose track of that. That's what makes us different than the world. We're infinitely different because we're bringing people to infinity. We're bringing the people to eternal. There's one of your dogs barking, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it. Is that you got a chocolate lab, haven't you? Is it a lab that you've yeah, got? I have, and then we got a little, little poodle, little poodle. There but, you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my elite crack uh, international security team, a French poodle and a, and a Canadian That's lab. Right, yeah. Well, was that a lab barking or was that the poodle? Which one was it? That was a poodle. I got. This is the, the plus three squirt bottle of silence here. There you go. Oh, yeah, awesome words. Oh, yeah, there's your firearm there, right there. <laughs> we we have one of those for cat. If anyone's not watching the video and listening, Dave Grossman just had a little squirt bottle to silence his cat there. You know, he's a, <laughs> yeah, the, the Russian assassin, yeah. Dave. That's what you're yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, I can't train my dog to not bark. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can yeah. bark anything you want to. And, yeah, and, yeah. You know, you know. But uh, yeah, so you were saying first eyes on the Lord. Yeah, first. And then uh, a couple of things I want you to think. Understand that you are a thousand times more likely to talk to him than you are to lay hands on him. Yes. And you're a thousand times more likely to lay hands on him than you are to shoot him. So first, get that spiritual bubble. And then second, be prepared to talk to people. And the dynamic there is about de-escalation. There's a lot of work on de-escalation around. And uh, the key thing is you've got to be confident yourself. You've got to be relaxed to make other people relax. You've got to be confident. And that comes skills and knowledge. The cop who lives their life in fear, the cop who has no, no gun skills and no physical skills, they're a ticking time bomb because they don't have confidence and they can't de-escalate. The first step in calming other people is to be calm yourself. And that comes from knowledge. Now, I'm going to give you what one lady called, and she's close to it, the three most important sentences you will ever say. Here's de-escalation broken into three important sentences. First, please tell me what's wrong. Somebody wants to hear my story. Somebody wants to know. And we'll talk later about interrupting the bad guy's oodle loop. Yeah. Nothing interrupts a oodle loop like a question. And a question about you. They want to know my story. The second question, this part of de-escalation, I'm sorry this is happening. It's true. You care about them. You're sorry these bad things are happening. You'd rather be doing other things right now. Please tell me what's wrong. I'm sorry that's happening. And then I will do everything in my power to help you. You know, my wife uh, has some, some healing issues, some health issues. You know, one day I asked her, I said, sweetie, please tell me exactly what's wrong. She said, ha, oh, 
Thank you for asking. Like, oh, I've never asked that before. Well, you've, you've read a book, Blueprint Marriage. You know, you, you're the master. Yeah. yeah and, and, then, and then I said, I'm sorry that's happened. And then I said, you know, the one place where we'll break the bank, the one place where we'll empty the bank account, we'll do whatever we need to when it comes to your wellness. Whatever you need, we're going to do. My little granddaughter comes up to me in tears. Oh, sweetie, please tell Grandpa what's wrong. I'm sorry this happened. We'll try to make sure that never happens again. So these are critical dynamics. Now, when we go from talking to them and de-escalation, there's de-escalation, the three most important senses you'll ever say, have them reviewed and ready. But then when we go to, uh, to laying hands on them, you know, we, we ask, you know, what do you do if somebody's screaming and shouting and waving their arms and charging the bull? You know, assuming you're not Pentecostal, assuming that's not normal. Well, it, it's called the starfish. Everybody grabs a limb and picks them up and carries them off. And you take five people and, and you form a starfish. Everybody grabs a limb, you know, one person at the head, and you pick them up and carry them off. There is no pretty way to control a non-compliant individual. I agree. There's agree. no pretty way to do that. The best way is that starfish. Everybody grabs a limb, picks them up, and carries them off. And it doesn't just happen. It has to be rehearsed. So let, let's roll on down then to the, the gun issue. The first question should be, I want, I've got a permit. I want to be on the team. Well, good for you. You know, we, I'm, our church allows everybody to carry. And we're, we're filled, full of concealed government holders that are carrying it. And they're kind of auxiliary members of our team. But if you're going to be on the team, we want to make sure you're ready. And the priority is you got to be a good shot. got to be a hell of a good shot. Yeah. So we're going to be in the range next weekend. And we want you to come join us. And we want to see how you shoot. And if you don't shoot up to standard, We'll get you up to standard. Yeah. Because at the moment or two, it's going to take precise training or precise preparation. And again, you, you, you won't be confident. You carry that gun around and live your life in fear. Carrying a guitar does not make you a musician. Yes. It's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. Carrying a gun does not necessarily make you a sheepdog. It's the training that comes with it. It's the skill. Now, I'm a huge fan of the martial art of the firearm called hajutsu.com, H-O-J-U-T-S-U.com. Uh, that's uh, a Hotel Oscar, Juliet Uniform Tango, Sierra Uniform, uh, hujutsu.com. It's a martial art of the firearm. In Japan, everything was an art. The bow's an art, sword's an art, unarmed combat's an art, and muzzle-loading muskets was an art called the fire arts, hujutsu. Then in the mid-1800s, repeating firearms began to show up, and the Japanese said, time out. You know, muzzle loaders are one thing, but the samurai can't compete with the repeating firearms. And they banned gunpowder weapons. One of the very few examples in human history where we banned a piece of weaponry evolution. Now, they called it hujutsu, the fire arts. And it's been resurrected by uh, an amazing individual with all the due authority from the people in Japan. He's, uh, he's uh, yeah, the most decorated Alaska state trooper. He's uh, a Vietnam Ranger right at the end of the war. He uh, uh, is a multiple black belt holder in a variety of different styles. One of only 30-odd Grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. His name is Jeff Hall, and he's the founder of Fujitsu. And I thought I was good. Uh, and you should have Jeff on board someday. You should you have him on your podcast. Uh, I'll get you introduced. Brilliant guy. He does a lot of writing also. A lot of prolific writer in magazines and such. And we turned shooting. Now, I grew up in the martial arts. I love the martial arts. I love the jo dojo. I love the structure. 
Americans aren't into competition. We don't have pistol teams anymore. We don't have bowling leagues. But over 20 million Americans are in the martial arts, striving against the standard, striving for ever greater perfection. I, we can wrap our mind around that. So I grew up in the martial arts, and I showed up for the first three-day hojitsu weekend. That was good. A little Ipsy and IDPA competitive shooting. Gun sight and front sight train, military trained. I thought it was good. And by the skin of my teeth, I barely made brown belt. And you shoot for your belt, and there's hundreds of rounds. You shoot fast, you shoot slow, you do this, you do that. And if just one round is outside the silhouette, right? Human safe silhouette. If just one round is off the silhouette, you disqualify it and got to start all over again next week. Wow, that's tough. And Hujitsu has had over 20 practitioners in real-world gunfights with over a 98% hit rate. Nobody else can even match that. Nobody can come close to that. And it's this fast, hard, go, go, that pressure of shooting for your belt. And the fact that if just one round is outside the target, you're done. And you do it slow, fast, you do it. It's brilliant. So yeah. I showed up. I thought it was good. But it took me two years to get my black. I knew what shots I was missing. You know. He's got a squirt bottle. Again, they breathe. There you go. The squirt bottle. Get the dogs under control. He's trying. Oh, I love you doing it. You're having a conversation and you're also training your dog at the same time. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, it never stopped. Yeah. You know, and you train the dog inside yourself as well. Yeah. So let's take a minute now and transition from that to how your mind and body is going to respond at life and death event. And uh, you, you know, I, I use the heart rate slide in, uh, in on combat. Yeah. And it's really important that we're talking about hormonal induced or fear induced heart rate. Now, when you are under physical stress, your face is red. If you have a dark complexion, black wood, so I'm a sentence, everybody, your face is flushed. It's called vasodilation. Your body is screaming for energy. Every blood vessel is wide open, pumping out to where it needs to go. When it's fear-induced, hormonal-induced, it goes white. This, uh, all, every blood vessel is shut down. Again, if a dark complexion, black wood, so I'm a sentence, everybody, if you look closely, the face goes pale. It's sometimes called the mask of fear, as you right. see white across the eyes. When the entire face becomes pale. And again, you can see it happening to everybody. It's just easier with that light complexion. And I put up a picture to my audience of two people coming down for the world change on a 9-11. One is a lady who's, who's absolutely exhausted and her face is beet red. Right beside her is a cop uh, called Chris Ramoroso. I talk about him in my book on spiritual combat. Yeah, I, I love you telling that story about him. Yeah. And his face is bone white. Their heart rate could be exactly the same. The impact on the body is exactly the opposite. So vasoconstriction lays at the heart of the body's response to stress. And the first thing that happens is you lose fine motor control. So a basketball player out on the court is in what we call condition red. They're making snapshots. They're moving. They can go. They can do. But give them five seconds, make a free throw. And they use their breathing to bring themselves down to condition yellow and make that free throw. So if you've got time and distance... You take a precise shot, you take a breath, and you press it off. If you don't have time to do set, that's a basketball player making a free throw. If you don't have time, oh, then you're a basketball player making a snapshot out on the court. And you need to move back and forth between those two. When you have time and distance, take that precise shot. When it's desperate fool, you got that close shot coming in. And, and, and here's this little tip, a little hujitsu tip out there. We, we time our draws. And if you can take a tenth of a second off your draw, that gives you a tenth of a second more on the standard of making the hit. And so we're under such time constraints, having that draw fast is important. And half of your draw stroke 
is going down to the gun. And if you want this hand, your gun hand to move faster, move the other hand faster. So what you do is you take that non-firing hand and you slap yourself to fire. And so fire. And that creates that speed to get that gun out ready when you need to. But then have I got time for a precise shot or would take that snapshot? So, you know, in the martial arts, we tell people, it's in, in baseball, baseball players, a pitcher, he wants this, this hand to go faster. Take this hand faster. So if you see them, throw this out, but watch the other hand as they bring that glove back and they thump it against themselves. And in the martial arts, you want this hand to go faster, boom, pull the other hand back faster. Well, what I'm seeing in there as well, which is, which is in the middle of that, is that critical thinking. I'd say as a scenario of my church, or I won't say the names to defend, to de not to defend people or to keep people out of it, but it was an incident in my church. This was um, 2016, so going back six years. And actually, I had my leg, I stabbed my Achilles tendon. Wouldn't recommend that injury to anyone, terrible injury. Um, I was in a cast, and a woman walked past me towards the front of a church, and straight away I saw some behavior indicators. She was carrying this jewelry box, which was out of place, and I got my crutch and knocked someone on the safety team and said, hey, you need to deal with this woman. And he said, what woman? And by the time then, she was throwing these things on the stage, and we had to do that staff procedure you mentioned earlier, but they sort of took her to a side. And then afterwards, people said to me, well, Simon, how did you know that something was going to happen? And I said, well, you know, the behavior cues, we can, we can train and talk about that. But then a member of a safety team said to me afterwards, said, Simon, can I give you a scenario? I said, yeah, sure. And they said, well, if that woman had had a firearm, what would you have done? And I said, well, I need to ask one qualifying question first. I said, do I have a gun or do I not have a gun? They said, you've got a gun. I said, okay, I've got a gun. I said, I need one more question. I said, what's the woman's behavior? You know, what is it that was trouble with? She said, well, she's pulled a gun and our lead pastor, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to shoot her. And he turned and looked at me and said, how can you make that decision so quickly? And I said, well, there's someone who's got a firearm, they're pointing at another human being. I don't need to wait for them to shoot or kill that person before I defend that person. But it, and it really said to me, and I often refer to that story, and I said, I, I protect the names to, to defend people. But it really reminded me, Dave, that in the middle of all that, which is why I love your books about on killing, um, on combat, got them here myself, is the, the, that critical thinking is often a key piece which is missed out, right? And that, that understanding and the reason why I could personally do that is my mind had gone there before surrounding what, what's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? What happens if I make a mistake? What's going to happen to my family? I'm stood next to my wife and my two sons. What's their perception of me going to be if they see me take another person's life? Yes, they'll say, well, Simon, you have the good cause to do it. However, I've still seen dad do this. It's going to change their perceptions. I think that critical thinking in there, which is why I love your work so much, is really a piece which is sometimes missing in the church safety world, or we don't talk about it enough. Let's dive into what does it feel like to, to do this? You know, how are people going to perceive you? What are your family going to say about that type of stuff? Well, let's, let's begin with how you and your body is trained. You become the sheep up. Your family knows you're going to have the back to the wall. Somebody in the restaurant has their back to the wall. It's going to be you. It takes no more time. It takes no more energy. And keep your gun hand free. Whatever you do, you do with your non-firing hand. You hold the leash. You hold your loved one's hands. Try to keep that gun hand free. And you let them understand that I'm a sheepdog and my job is to protect people. Now, we have two books for that very purpose. And if you don't have them, Simon, I've got one in the mail to you right now. One of them is the sheepdog kids. Yes, I've got that. And you signed that for my two sons. Really grateful. Yeah. And that's the best tool I've got to help your little one understand what you do. This is the answer. But 
take it one step further. <laughs> Have you seen? We got the book. Why Mommy Carries a Gun. No, that one I haven't got. I'd love, a, I'd love a signed copy of that, Dave. I'll talk to Mike tomorrow. And it really goes in detail about why we carry a gun. And we don't have to hurt people. We want to help people. We, we talk about if you find a gun, stop, don't touch, uh, uh, four universal gun safety laws. We've even got some really cool bunch of famous sheepdogs throughout history. Got Annie Oakley, you know, Alvin York. And they're all sheepdogs. Alvin York is a Yorkie. Yeah, the fierce little York, you know. We've got, there's some great things. We've got Audie Murphy and Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. She always carried a gun uh, during the war when Roosevelt was president. She wouldn't let the Secret Service drive her. She, they said, well, at least carry a gun. And they trained her in it. When Roosevelt died, she went back home to New York. She got a concealed care permit. And for the rest of her life, she always carried a gun. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we, these are the answers to the question. There's no easy, simple answer. But these are the tools that we have given you to explain to your kids who we are and what we do and why we do. And then when it happens, it's no big deal. And you kind of do this. You know, Daddy carries a gun to protect people. And we pray we'll never have to use it. So remember, you don't want to have to use it. If you can disarm, if there's other things you can do. But let's go back to that vasoconstriction. And if initially, you'd lose fine motor control. We've all been there. We're kind of tense and our handwriting sloppy. Well, that's, that's kind of condition red. And it's not too bad, but as it gets worse and worse, what happens is you begin to lose all motor control except gross motor skill. You can pound on something. You can run like heck. One of the things that happens under extreme stress is the body dumps the bladder and bowel. Yes. Under extreme stress, people miss themselves. If there's a load in the, in the lower intestines, uh, it, it'll, it's, it might go. And generally, it's people who are shot or people in traffic accidents. And I, I do in-service training to hospitals. I, I do, they call it grand rounds. It, many, many hospitals. Just did one in Indianapolis recently. And I asked, you know, what ratio, the ER people or emergency room people, what ratio of traffic accident victims have messed themselves? Numbers all over the map. If you die, it's going to happen. You're dead and boom, off it goes. You'd stop. But in traffic accidents, it's very high. The numbers vary greatly, but people are devastated by it. And a little bit of psychological first aid goes a long way. You tell them that's your body's natural response. Happens all the time. Don't worry about it. One out of five of the soldiers in World War I, or World War II, one out of five of our troops in World War II would admit they'd mess themselves at one time or another in combat. Half of them would admit they wet themselves at one time or another in combat. One old World War II vet told me, he said, Dave, all that proves is that all the other guys were liars. <laughs> Those are just ones who are willing to tell the truth. That we yes, don't know that yeah. we can't call them liars, mm. but one out of five of the guys in World War II, the Greeks used to say, your bowels turn to water. You can believe the Greeks said it happened to everybody. What's a Scotsman where under his kilt? Nothing. He squats and squirts and moves on. <laughs> throughout history, it's been part of combat, and it's called stress diarrhea. And yeah. the body's doing it for a very good reason. I must say, when we're getting into this conversation, I never thought we'd be talking about bodily fluids and diarrhea, Dave. So it's like, All of the Danielle. I'm trying to, yeah. but it's true because it's helping people because people wouldn't necessarily know this. Yeah. You know, we, we tell our cops, if, if an error happens to you, don't be devastated, don't be destroyed. Tell yourself that at least one out of five of the kids in World War II change your doors and rock on. And one of the cops says, yeah, and bag it as evidence. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he says, could you see it in court where it's sincere and fear for your life? Well, well exhibit yeah. A, you know? Yeah. So we had a cop in New Jersey, a cop in New Jersey who was 
at home in civilian clothes, but armed. And he was attacked by a couple of armed gangbangers. They're coming to kill him. And he drew his weapon and he hit them both and they ran off and were caught later in the hospital. He wasn't harmed, but he said in a statement, I was caught completely by surprise. I responded totally with my training. And the level of the fear response can be seen in the fact that I, I messed myself. Uh, yeah, and who can deny in court, <laughs> this guy This guy was in fear for his life. I yeah. mean, he's got you from that point. Oh, the I'm going, oh, you did it on purpose. He executed those guys. Oh, no. He <laughs> was totally in fear for his life. Nobody can doubt that. So bag it as evidence. But but as we had, one end, you'd lose fine motor control. At the other end, you're messing yourself. And again, when you die, that happens. You're knocked unconscious. That happens. Just tell people it's normal. But how do we prevent it? Yeah. And the answer to that is stress inoculation. The answer to that is training and force on force engagements and realistic training. And I want to show you something. This is the very first podcast I've been on where I've been able to announce my new book on hunting. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'm so glad about that. And it's available on my website. It comes out in March of 2023 on yeah. Amazon. Here we are in January, and the only place you can buy it is on my website, crossmanontooth.com. Yeah. That the single best way to inoculate yourself, the single best way to prepare yourself for combat is hunting. We know in combat, the shots get muted. People talk about the fact that you know, don't hear the shot, but they hear the brass hit the ground behind them. Shots are muted or they don't hear it at all. Hunters will tell you when they shoot a deer, they hear nothing and their ears don't ring. Now, the shutout is in the nerve. The ear is still being hammered. Wear hearing protection when you hunt or you'd be a deaf old woman a pain in the butt. But that only thing you can do that will tap into the same physiological response as a deadly force incident is hunting. And so, uh, I, I, and you can't understand, we say from an evolutionary standpoint, and we respect all standpoints, the creative, evolutionary, but from an evolutionary standpoint, if our species' existence was 24 hours up until the last six minutes, all we ever did was hunt. The agricultural revolution, if it existed in 24 years, agriculture didn't even occur until six minutes ago. And even today, Hunting is what we're wired to do. It's what we're prepared to do. It's, you know, why do we have that auditory conclusion? Why don't we hear the shot? Well, if you're a rabbit running like heck, dude, you don't need to shut down the ears. But if you're going to face another predator one-on-one, -on -one, every predator uses sound as a weapon. A wolf, a dog, we know a duck. You've seen a dog. That, and it, I saw how do dogs today. What? And... and uh, and, and, you know, we, we, you know, tigers and lions have a roar and the tiger's roar and the lion's roar is a deafening, stunning, multi-harmonic weapon. Now, we'll talk about how we can use our voice in combat in a minute. But our body has the ability to tune out that roar. And when you're holding a spear and the lion is charging you, you've got to be able to tune out that sound and stay focused on what you're doing. We have been given that ability. You know, and now here we are with gunpowder combat. Wow. And, and we got the auditory exclusion. We got to say, where did it come from? Why is it there? And it comes back to hunting. And so just understand that it is very, very rare for people to have to hunt each other. 
You know, people they look at some terrible crime in the news. Oh, that proves that mankind's a killer. No, that's an outlier. That, that's literally one in a million. That terrible crime you heard about today, it, it's, we're a nation of a third of a billion people. Heard about one terrible crime today? That's one in a third of a billion. You explain to me that 99.9999% of our citizens who didn't kill anybody today, divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents, in a lifetime of provocation, less than one in a thousand people even seriously attempt to take that human life across the span of their life. And why? Well, that's what on killing's about, that array of psychological, physiological, social restraints that restrain killing. So at the moment of truth, when we're protecting people, how do we overcome that? You know, hunting critters is, is part of life. Hunting our own kind is pathological. And so we've got to be inoculated. We have to be trained. And, and again, before you kill your own species, you should have experience with killing other species. This is yeah. normal killing. And then we push that envelope to having to shoot members of your own species. Yeah. And I really tell you with all my heart and soul that, you know, and not only that, but hunting is the key to our ecology. Well, I like the two things that you said there, because really you're doing what I thought you'd say. You were differentiating between the tactical skills-based and then we're moving on to this mindset and understanding and, and the, like you say, you take it even at an animal. And actually, when I was talking to my wife maybe a couple of months ago about this, and she was saying that she couldn't hunt because she couldn't kill another animal. And I'm sure there's some people that carry a firearm, maybe in a church, that have never shot or killed an animal before. And like you say, that is, that's a good, in a respectful way, and because we don't want that meat to go to waste, but that is a good layer, isn't it, into being able to stood in front of another human and know what it's like to pull, pull that trigger. Not everyone can do that, and that's okay. But we're looking for those people that are in the position to do it to make sure their mindset is right. Yeah. You know, when we talk about conservation and the ecology, the vast, vast majority of all the parks and recreations money, the vast majority of the Department of Natural Resources comes from hunting licenses. Hunters play by the rules. We're in the middle of millions of armed people and they, they play by the rules. And if you break the rules, they take your rifle and they take your truck. You know, imagine if golfers cheated and you take their clubs and you ban them from golfing for the rest of their life. There'd be no golfers left, right? But if a hunter breaks the rules, you lose your gun, you lose your right to hunt, you lose your truck. So millions of people out there playing by the rules. And it's a powerful, powerful tool and, and, and a great way to prepare. Uh, one of the guys in the 60s and 70s who led the... Uh, NYPD stakeout squad. And uh, I got the honor to talk to this guy. Name is, is, is not coming to me right now. Pretty famous guy. Shot more people in the flu vaccine, you know. And, and, uh, and I was with another cop. Uh, they were at a meeting. This cop, Joe Paskvan, in, in Ohio, had had nine shootings. And another cop had almost exactly the same amount sitting at a table, this NYPD guy. And both of them said, you know, that they didn't hear the shots and they didn't see their sights. They didn't see their sights. It was, it was instantly shooting every one of them. But the NYPD cop, he said, the difference between me and you is this. He says, you've been on the job for over 20 years. It happened nine times and you had no warning it was coming. He said, I slept every day until noon. I went to the range. I, I, I shot and then I went to a stakeout. And when somebody came to rob that liquor store, I would step out and give them one chance to drop the weapon. Nah. If they didn't do it, I would shoot them. And he said, that was my day. And I saw my sights every time. Yeah. 
decision. Now, this guy, here's what's important. When he picked people for his squad, what kind of people did he look for? Number one, hunters. Fair Number enough. two, reloaders. People reload their own ammo. If you care enough to reload your own ammo, then you got your head right. And then competitive shooters. And that's a third, you know, a small link. But, but he was looking for hunters because I've already been around that block. And we talk about buck fever. The first time you hunt, the first time you kill, a powerful set of dynamics kick in. And this is kind of crude, but it's almost like the first time you have sex. We're designed to procreate. We're designed to procreate. And a powerful set of neural processes kick in when you do that. And we're designed to hunt and we're designed to kill. And when you shoot that first time, that powerful dynamic is kicking in. It's who we're made to be. It's who we're supposed to be. But let's go back. One last point on hunting and then move on. So the vast majority of all the money for conservation of wildlife and lands comes from hunters. Millions of people pay their hunting license every year and their duck stamp and the other things. Well, we use the example of Africa. And Kenya has banned all trophy hunting and their wildlife is being slaughtered. Well, I would say, don't, don't think that Kenya is not losing, not hunting, that it's bush hunting. They, and we can't protect them. I mean, we don't have the money, but under the resources now. Botswana made a circle around every village and said, everything in this circle belongs to you. And that crazy American who's going to come over there and pay $50,000 to shoot that lion, who's at the end of his life cycle anyway. Oh, by the way, death by old age in nature is a terrible, horrible death. That natural death in nature is gasping out your last breath as insects and rodents eat you alive. You know, if you don't have a predator to get you a quick death, death by old age is horrible. So here's this crazy American going to pay $50,000 to shoot that lion who's at the end of his life cycle anyway. And that will pay all the money you need for all the game wardens you'd ever need. And they protect their wildlife and they keep track of every creature. And when the creature's at the end of their life cycle, they get a quick, clean, ethical death. The community gets all the meat and he gets the head. He's giving them great amounts of money. So this is that model that we're saying that to protect the world, to protect ecology, comes back to hunters. It's who we are. It's what we're built to do. But let's go back then to the physiological responses to combat. Number one, tunnel vision, almost universal. About 80% were conscious of tunnel vision. I think the other 20% just didn't know what was happening. When we do our training, whenever we do any kind of hands-on training, force-on-force training, uh, whether it's whether it's unarmed or, or armed, whenever we do training, videotape. And the vast majority of the learning will happen afterwards in the videotape. Yeah. And you see this over and over again. Wow. There was a guy right beside him, and I didn't even see that person. I, yeah. yeah they, they were in tunnel vision, and they didn't know they were in tunnel vision until they saw the video and said, that guy was right there, and I never saw. So the tunnel vision is very, very, and bad guys have tunnel vision too. Well, lateral movement can take right off their radar screen, get explosively off the X. Now, in Jitsu, we've got several drills where we draw on sidestep. Boom, draw on sidestep. And I believe every draw should have a sidestep built into it. Now, hold your hand up here and say, hit my hand. Boom, easy. Now, start moving the hand and say, hit my hand. Boom. The dynamics completely change. You must be in motion to reduce the probability in shot. And so, boom, we got this explosive draw and sidestep. Or even if already guns already out, sidestep and shoot. When we do our force on force engagement, simulation, paint bullet, paintball, airsoft, 
it's not kill or be killed, but it's hurt or be hurt. And a lot of people, when they do it the first time, especially UTM, simunition type, you know, paint bullets, their body treats it like it's real. And the role players, the people playing the bad guys, they have found they can do a quick sidestep and come right off their radars. They got tunnel vision, do a sidestep, come right off their radars. So one of the things we need to do is recognize the, the most pervasive, all-encompassing thing is tunnel vision. It, it's like the predator in which you, you home in on the threat, and you, you defeat that to the bad guy. The bad guy's tunnel vision through rapid sidestep. We defeat it scanning. When we shoot and then we check 360, that breaks tunnel vision. So now we need to have that explosive sidestep. Get explosively off the X. Boom, sidestep and shoot. One last thing. Use your voice. When you're all done saying drop the weapon, you're done, you're ready to draw and shoot, ask a question. Nothing will freeze up the OODA loop like asking a question. And the question you should ask is, who are you? Oh, you don't care about the answer. Who are you? Oh, and, and the act of asking that question, well, why does he want to know? Even when you're doing force, I'm forcing it. Yeah. Even when you know it's coming, it still bogs you down. I, oh, he's going to shoot. That's what I mean. Boom. And, and, and so we want that split second to interrupt their OODA loop. You know, the OODA loop is a verb that's like that. We've got that split second to use our voice to mess up their OODA loop. So the lion has a roar. The tiger has a roar. The wolf has a, a roar, you know, the, the barking dog. We need to use our voice. And when, when we hit that level, where we do that explosive sidestep, you know, who are you? Boom. Sidestep and shoot. We have hit point in which we're scientifically applying all the things. Now, next comes auditory. Let's get muted. But next, it, and we talked about auditory exclusion. Your, your, your ears are still being hammered, right? But then we got slow motion time. About, about three out of four are conscious of slow motion time. And it, it's not like the, the matrix where the bullet crawls past, but it's where the bullet's slow enough you can track with your eyes. Have you ever done paintball or airsoft? You, yeah, yeah, fun paintball. You, track, you can track the bullet with your eyes. Well, that's what's happening in combat, that you're tracking it with your eyes. And three different times, people have walked up and pointed to where the bullet hit. And no way they could have done that if they weren't tracking it with their eyes like they said they were. But uh -huh. I had the most amazing example just a couple of months ago. I was training in Long Island. Bunch of NYPD and, and, and Long Island regional cops and a, and a U.S. Marshals team. Now, the Marshals had recently been in an incredible gunfight. And one of the Marshals told me, she said, she said, he pointed his gun at me. I drew and leaned back and I watched the bullet go past and clip my hair. She said, she said, I watched oh, wow. it go past and clip my hair. So now slow motion time blows people's mind. He said, whoa, where all that might happen? No big deal. It's all about being forewarned and forearmed. But the next thing that happens is really hits the heart of the matter is memory gaps. Half of all trained seasoned cops had gaps in the memory. They, they just flat had blackouts. And, and after a couple of nights of sleep, some of that comes back, sometimes not. So let me give you an angle of this. I think this is really important. I had a lady with a cop's wife come up to me and tell me, she said, I'll tell you about memory gaps. Okay. She said, a guy came to our house to murder me and my kids while my husband was gone. Now, we've got a record number of cops being murdered in the line of duty. They're being ambushed, executed, and they're also coming to the house to kill their kids. Everybody out there should go to officerprivacy.com. They don't have to be a cop. Officerprivacy.com, and they will take you off 
of every existing list. Really? Going and dock you. And not just Kafka. I'll do it myself. I didn't do it, and you'll be glad you did. Officerprivacy.com. And why I've received threats and attacks like you wouldn't believe, and, and just knowing that I can go to these guys and get them taken off. You know, yeah. I'm still not a hard guy to find. People know, but but it's going to be a lot harder to find out. So here's a guy came to the house to murder the wife and kid. The wife had a Glock, right? real simple, point and click interface, and the wife killed this guy. And she said, I never lost a second of sleep over killing this guy to protect my family. And I believe that. When you're using violence to protect your loved ones, an entirely different set of neurons kick into gear. Mama there, picking her cubs, one of the most dangerous things on the planet. But she said, what messed me up was I heard my voice in the audio recording of the 911 call. And to this day, I have no memory of making that call. Yeah. And then somebody said, it's normal. It's in all combat. Look at page 55. Boom, it's just fine. Now, psychologists call that normalizing. Too trivial, too trivial to term. There's nothing powerful. But it's not enough to say, oh, oh, that's normal. Point to the book. Turn to page 55 of the book. Point to it and show her where half of all cops had the same response. And, and so it's so much better to have known that ahead of time. And I'm just looking for your book on kidding, Dave, because I think there was something in there that I had posted, noted, which was about the rationalization of the exception stage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to. You've written many books; you won't remember first and section. But, 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 but that is true, isn't it? That that is. I mean, I think there's two things I've got highlighted here. One was about the concern stage. How am I going to do? And the second was a rationalization acceptance stage. That's really what you said. Okay. The stuff yeah. I highlight on your on your book, and, and we saw that with Jack Wilson a little bit, didn't we, in 2019, um, West Freeway, where you know he said that he killed Eve and he didn't kill a kill a person. And I mean, I would still say. He did kill a person because he killed someone with profound mental illness. But his yeah. rationalization was this was someone possessed by the devil. Yeah, but I had to, exactly, yeah, had to, had to take away and stuff. Yeah, Whatever yeah. the metaphor is, yeah. I, yeah, when we are in a battle against evil, and again, we started with that, you know, we should come full cycle with that. Yeah. We need a force for good on our side. But when we talk about how the body responds, one last thing I want to mention is memory distortions. About mm. one out of five, trained law enforcement officers just flat remembered something that did not happen. And so I've been out on the road for 25 years, retired to the army over 25 years ago. And just within the last year, I got the most amazing example of memory distortions. A young black officer in Indiana, just a super squirter young man, he said, you're right, things are, things are crazy, things have come unglued. He said, I've been in three deadly force incidents in just the last two years. He said, I want to tell you about memory distortion. He said, this guy was arm's reach away, and he pulled out a knife. Now, when you're sitting there at arm's reach away, and he's got a knife, the deck is stacked against you. You know, we, we talk about you know, somebody with a knife can charge 20 feet and stab you before you can draw the weapon. When they're arm's reach away. But he said, and in Hollywood, you shoot some people one time, they all fly away. You know, just recently, I, I don't watch much TV, but. My wife loves Yellowstone, so we watched the new, I think it was 1883, you know, in early stages, a nice Western. They had Sam, you know, one of my favorite actors in it. And, and they, there's a scene where they're in a bar and all the, the bad guys stand up and, and they all shoot them. They shoot them once and they fly away and it's over. That's yeah. not a word. Yeah, no real life. Especially with a pistol. You can hit the magazine and they'll empty their magazine. Then you'll both die at least. 
It was with a pistol in your clothes, and you can. The only game stopper is pretty much headshot. But go back to my case study now. He said the guy's arms reached away. He pulled out a knife. I drew a shot, and it hit the spinal cord. And the guy dropped like a bag of rock. Again, almost never happened. So the first bullet, unless it's a headshot, for the first bullet to bring him down like that. He said, and the guy never touched me, but I saw blood on my hands. I think he said, I'm going to get cut. I'm going to keep fighting. And he saw blood on his hands, and he kept looking for the blood. And then he's, he's, he's the peer support team, a fellow officer whose job it is to link up with him now and help him. And he's with the peer support guy, a friend of his. They're on the way to the ambulance. He's fine, but always go to the hospital. Always get him checked up. And uh, he's in the, and, you know, he's in a vehicle, one of the hospital. And the peer support guy says, dude, for the last time, there is no blood on your hands. Quit asking me. That's how powerful the memory distortions can be. So think about that now. Half of all trained season cops had memory gaps. One out of five had memory distortion. Would it happen to you? And what happens, that the point of all of this is this. We want you to survive spiritually, first and foremost. It's order to everything. We want you to survive physically and psychologically, and we want you to survive legally. Cops today are trained to say, I was in fear for my life. I used deadly force. There's the perpetrator. There's the evidence. There's the witness. I want to talk to my lawyer. <sighs> After you've been in that deadly force incident, there may be memory gaps. There may be memory distortions. And everything is videotaped. Everything we do is videotaped. So here's the video. And what you said happened didn't happen. And the thing happened that you didn't put in your report. And so, you know, I, I always begin my class with the Pledge of Allegiance. And I asked him, what were the last three words you said? Justice for all. Justice for all. And throughout my class, when I ask you, what's your goal? The answer is justice for all. And so you've got memory gaps and you've got memory distortion. And you put that on paper and it will, it will destroy you in court. All, yeah. all we want is justice. All we want is the truth. So it's the law in Texas. It's common sense everywhere else. The cop has the right to see every video before they make their formal written statement. Right after the incident, cops write, oh, you know, you got memory gaps, he, the things he didn't mention, the things he did mention, you know, pick his tail in court. But how much yeah. more so for you? How much more so for you? So you're going to have memory gaps, maybe 50-50. You're going to have memory distortion, one out of five. So your thing as a security member is to say, I was injured all my life. He had a weapon now. Once the perpetrator down, our goal is never to kill. We're shooting to save lives. Yeah. And once they're no longer a threat, we're trying to save their life. We'll slap on a tourniquet. We'll call the ambulance. And our goal is never to take a life. Our goal is to protect lives. Yeah. Once they're no longer a threat, you know, we only use a gun to save, it, save lives because the only option left to save lives. Our goal is to save lives. Once he's no longer a threat, his life is precious. He's the life on the planet. But as a result of what we do, there's a chance that people will die. Yeah. It's not be taken lightly. And this is not the time to be shooting your mouth off. This is the time. Well, I'm a member of the church security team. Everybody's here. I'm, I'm going to halfway to being a cop. I, I'll say what happened. No. No. This is not the time to be shooting your mouth off and giving a statement. I was in fear for my life. I had to use death force. I want to talk to my lawyer. Yeah. Memory gaps, memory distortions. And before you make any kind of a formal statement, see every video of what happened. 
have the entire team debrief and have them say what happened. And then once you've got a good handle on what happened, then put it on paper. That's true for cops, that's true even more so for us. I like it, Devin, as we, as we start to come to the, the end of our conversation, because I said we might talk for like 45 minutes, but you have such great stuff. I can never, never cut you off because we are listening to you so much from it. But we've, we've covered a lot of stuff. And my, my goal and desire going into this conversation was to take your years of experience and really, really reinforce to my listeners and those that work in chair safety and security, but just go into the range, just doing drills is not enough. You need to think about some of the things that Dave has spoken about. You know, the cops see every video the memory gaps, the memory distortion, the mindset you need to take another human life, starting with on hunting his new book uh, and not shooting your mouth off, making sure you're taking time to see all these videos before you reflect on, on what happened. So uh, a lot of great stuff in there is going to really help people. And again, you know, I've got, if you're watching the video, I've got on killing in front of me here, on combat, compulsory reading for everyone. I've got Dave's sheepdog book, what he gave to my sons and signed. We've got the, why mummy carries a gun. That's what do in the mail. But yeah, no, I can't love it. I can't wait to see it. I mean, people really buy, buy these books and read them because it is so much more than going to the range and being proficient. Yes, you need that, but I really want you to understand the mindset and everything else that comes along, but the depth of responsibility carrying that firearm, knowing one day you could be in a position for that trick. And Dave's giving you a lot of stuff there to, to think about. So, Dave, before we close out, I know you've got your new project on Grossman. Um, tell me a little bit about that and how people can um, get hold of you. Well, you know, we have Killology.com forever. And Killology.com will stay take you to my new website. Criminology is not about teaching you to be a criminal. Killology is not about teaching people to kill. It's about understanding the factors enable and restrain killing, right? And uh, of it. The Antifa folks and ever folks have been attacking us. We got threats like you wouldn't imagine. And, and, and so, you know, it's maneuver warfare. Don't meet people head to head. Just sidestep. So we rebranded the GrossmanOnTruth.com. The truth on combat, the truth on killing, the truth on spiritual combat, now the truth on hunting. GrossmanOnTruth.com. We got a store online, and the only place you can get a copy of Unhunting for the next two months is grossmanontruth.com. Go to our store, get a signed copy, personalize it if you ask. Uh, I'll make it, you know, whatever you want me to say. And Prop asked me one time, hey, I write you to Joe Blow and, uh, and tell him that I taught you everything you know. He said, Officer Joe <laughs> Blow, the man who taught me everything I know. You know, you, you can go to a new website and, uh, and it really is, you know, truth on killing, the truth on combat, but ultimately the truth on spiritual warfare. Remember, our nation will die, our son will die, but eternity will continue. And don't lose that great spiritual standpoint, and whatever this earth does to us, it'll chew us up and spit us out. But we're not whole. Our home is over there. We're soldiers deployed to the war zone. And in World War II, when they signed on, they signed on for the duration of the war. We've been deployed to a war zone, and we're here as God's faithful soldiers or, or sheepdogs, uh, our this God's faithful dog, uh, and we're here for the duration. This is not home. We're going to leave this place and come to an awesome, amazing place afterwards that, that is beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. But never lose track of that spiritual standpoint, and, uh, and, and this is our great strength that we can pull upon in our hour of greatest need, and 
And Simon, you are doing the Lord's work. It's such a pleasure to be on board with you. And... Well, and I was going to say, I mean, this is the third time that you've graced me your presence on my podcast. And I'm, um, it's always an honor and a privilege to, to talk to you, really. And for my listeners, I got to meet um, Dave Graceman last summer at the FBSN conference um, in Missouri. So um, it was really, really, really a pleasure. And you sign in the book, My Two Sons. I came back and my, my youngest son, Mason, yeah, he reads that book. So um, thank you for doing that. So. I'm sure for now, there'll be other times when we'll talk again. I'm pretty confident of that. So, you know, you're, um, I re- really appreciate you coming on, sharing sharing your knowledge. So, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed day. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect your ministry.